Welcome everyone, this is Chief Yuya, and you are listening to Chief Yuya Podcasts. Welcome, welcome, peace to you all. All right, let's get right into it. Uh, sexual Revolution, you may see it in the title, if I stick to that title by the time I'm done. But uh, there's a lot going on right now in this season, as I told you there would be, coming into 2020, that it would be more... Uh, sensational, more eventful, more horrific and more tragic than even 2019 or 2018. Things tend to get worse. But um, I wanted to speak about some sexual situations that are um, happening right now, uh, mainly in the Anglosphere or in, in the Western world, and the effect that it's clearly having on those of us who are in tune with some of the serious issues of our time. Of course, uh, we have um, viruses that are that are moving around and we have a lot of uh, political intrigue. We have a looming stock market crash, which, of course, will lead to a deeper recession. Um, uh, food prices are rising, like I told you they would last year, uh, with all the flooding in the Midwest. And uh, individuals I know who are carnivores have shared with me that the meat prices are rising. Of course, they would be because all of that grain that was lost in 2019 is used to feed, you know, the livestock that's uh, harvested for the meat industry. So, but we're talking about right now, sexual revolution. Now, I know a lot of times if you hear a person talk about the sexual revolution or even the free love movement, it may take your mind back, um, I guess we'd say about uh, 60 years, right? Uh, the 1960s. Um, in truth, the sexual revolution, as is usually documented, lasted from uh, the 1960s, about 1960 to 1980, we can say, right? Um, as they call it, the sexual revolution. Because at that point, it, it did all of the uh, damage <laughs> that it needed to do. Ironically, um we are told that AIDS was discovered in 1981. It's kind of like a year after the the um, sexual revolution ended. But you know, in any event, well, let's let's talk about what it means to us today, or means for us today. You know, uh, I was having a conversation with someone, and we were talking about time periods, and I was speaking to the 1950s. We were looking at the slogan of "Making America Great." You know, again, just kind of unpacking that slogan slogan a little bit. And um, one of the things that I spoke about was, you know, how much um, enthusiasm sometimes is shown around the 1950s. And that there was a that was a time period that was, you know, it was stark different from what we experience now. You even see in like um, a lot of shows years ago or even movies they depicted that era. That was like a prime era, you know, um, in America. You have shows like Happy Days, which was based on uh, The Last American Virgin, you know. Um, but, you know, different different shows like that um, where there's this idea of the simplicity of the 50s and even the more pure lifestyle, but definitely uh, for some in America, life seemed to be a bit more simple. 
Again, I say some because others were being lynched wholesale. So that wouldn't be that simple, you know, having that fear always looming over your head. But in any event, you have kind of like during that era of the 50s, you have a lot of family stability. And that family stability, you know, a lot of it was based around even the war. You had these soldiers who were returning back to the States. And one of their primary desires was to get married, have a good a good job or a good career, and build a family for themselves. And um, because of some of the um, the progressions in the medical industry, people were even living longer. They were living healthier lives around that that point. So you know um, that post war era, there was a lot of advances that. Uh, people were able to take advantage of but then it was also this mindset and this desire for family building right so of course that creates a a totally um different type of environment that maybe we have now in the 2020s right um back then it was the norm for two young individuals to remain chaste until marriage in fact it was celebrated even among men to, to remain chaste, to remain virgins until they were able to uh, exchange marriage, marital vows with someone. So um, there was a lot of social norms around that time that were very protective and uh, securing of the family. And the idea of a family represented freedom and prosperity. You see, uh, it wasn't until later you know, again, we're talking about the 1950s. It wasn't until later with the um, with the women's lib movement, with the sexual revolution, where the idea of family was then seen as a more oppressive entity, a more oppressive state. Okay, so I want to I want to share something with you really quick. I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna play it right. Now, for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, you will um, see this video. And for those of you who are just on the podcast, you'll hear the video. (laughs) All right. Okay, my phone just rang. I don't know what happened, but I'm going to play it really quickly and then um, I'm going to come back. But let me just warn those of you who are watching. uh, The content is a bit strong, so... If you have children in the room, I definitely suggest you cover their eyes and maybe even their ears. Um, There's no profanity per se, but the content is strong. All right. And then after that, I'll continue. But I just want to provide a little context for where I'm getting ready to go with this. Who likes to do some of those funny little dances from Fortnite? Does anybody know any of the dances from Fortnite? Oh, then you are a credit to your community. (laughs) But most of all, Michael likes to twerk. Now, does anybody in this room know how to twerk? All right, well, it's quite important to the story, so I will just give you a very quick demonstration. (laughs) All you need to do is you just stand with your feet sort of shoulder width apart, like so, okay? And I'll I'll show you at the side so you get a better view there. And you you crouch down into this sort of position here, so your bum's sticking out. Don't be taking this all in. (laughs) And then you just move your bum up and down like that, and that's twerking. Okay, so willfully that wasn't too much too much for you, wasn't too painful um for some of you. And um, you know, I'm 
definitely wishing that uh, it helped to provide some context for where we're going, right? And, and just this conversation, which is, of course, an our new conversation. Um, and reason being is that um, a lot of times when we step into the conscious arena, there's a lot of talk around freedom and really the removal of rules, the removal of strict standards, uh, the removal of any ideas of conformity, of course. And a lot of times this is heralded in by a sense of sexual freedom. And sometimes people associate uh, leaving the bounds of religion or leaving the bounds of societal expectation with this idea of sexual freedom. And again, a lot of this comes from the, the, uh, what, what we call the sexual revolution. You know, there's a psychological commitment that people make to uh, remove some of the anxieties that they have around certain tendencies, you know, natural tendencies. And when they're able to move into uh, spiritual space, you know, they, they try to find, I guess you would say, like a justification for everything. They, they consider it all to be, you know, um, things that, that accentuate their growth and, and provide greater fulfillment and, of course, this great autonomy of action. And, and the truth is, just those ideas within themselves were really popularized in the 1970s, you know, where there was just this, this free will movement if you will. And, and sometimes we enter into our spiritual packs or our spiritual environments and we don't really, you know, we're, we're taking things in with us. So we're taking ideas with us and we're not really looking at, are we really free? Cause freedom is free thinking. Or are we just taking in other norms, thinking that we've done something most of the time we haven't. Right. And I'm going to be getting into that a bit more because, like I said, in our new conversation, we demand change. And most of the time when you're when you're just kind of freestyling in your spirituality, it doesn't matter. You do whatever you feel like doing, whatever you feel, whatever you vibe with. That's not acceptable for us. You know, it's just not acceptable. And, you know, if it was just about whatever you feel like doing, then uh, you wouldn't really need to be listening to this. Just go do what you feel. You know, and again, a lot of times those that that ignorance and that spiritual misunderstanding, um, it comes from an error. It comes from certain ideas that were already implanted. And sometimes people don't realize that, again, yeah, you may have left the church or left the masjid or moved out of your masjid or move out of your, your parents house. But it doesn't mean that you've completely developed a free psychology. You know, there are there are still um, social cues that you may be picking up on and using, even though you may be thinking you're discrediting certain norms, but you're, you're still playing to those tunes. Um, and I understand a lot of times that we look at certain values that are considered traditional and we see how they failed us. And in truth, that is true mostly. You know, I often say that tra tradition is one of the most dangerous things, you know, because a lot of times we'll continue to do certain things because of um, tradition. Well, this is how we've always done it. And there's really no questioning as to if it works or not. And again, that's a much, mm, much deeper thing. I'm going to be getting into probably in about another month or so. I'm working on, on a project right now 
And then when I finish that and and share that, then I'll be getting deeper into that. And again, primarily for our new people, because for everyone else, you know, I can't really expect any other standard or any other norm that um, you would have to fulfill because you haven't made a pact too. Um, and imagine it or not, but that doesn't really necessarily work in your favor, even though you might imagine that it does. It doesn't actually. But, um, you know, a lot of the reactive mm, answers and the reactive thought that individuals have towards, um, you know, righteousness and purity and, you know, that was something that I shared recently in a post where I, I spoke about um, how righteousness can be antagonistic to those who have committed themselves to engaging in wicked acts. You know, and they sink so far into these deep depressions because what happens is that they, they really lose all sense and sight of where they ought be, you know, and... What happens really is that uh, they start to take on certain ideas of immorality and and they associate immorality with power. I do what I want. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'll tear this thing up. I'll do this. I'll do that. You know, sometimes that destruction becomes um, so appealing. Some people think that uh, spirituality is nothing but chaos or nothing but chaos magic without really understanding what chaos magic is or the fact that not everyone is magical regardless of of memes regardless of how many books you can buy on magic it's not a profession for everyone just like everyone is not born to be a wrestler everyone is not born to be a, an assassin everyone is not born to be a surgeon you know, we, we all have our positions and lots in life. And though some would, would seem more attractive than others, it doesn't necessarily mean it's for you. This was also associated with the conversation I was having with the person about the 1950s and just different, you know, ideas. And we were talking about how people just jump up and claim certain Orisha energies. And, and the person was saying that it seems like every woman wants to be Oshun. You know, every woman tells you she's Oshun. And I said, yeah, you know, because of that, the attention and, and the idea of, of being attractive and, of course, being able to manipulate men and just being so sweet and so loving. But um, if you really understand that energy, you understand that that's not what that energy is. People typically who come under that that marking, and I'm going to say it straight, this is not an Arisha Channel broadcast, but nonetheless... They're not very loving. You'd be hard-pressed, hard-pressed to find a selfless, loving, Oshun person. They're usually very self-absorbed, very immature, and very unloving. And you figure that one out. But, um, you know, people don't understand things and then they want to get involved in things that they don't understand and it makes them feel better. And a lot of that has to do with what we're talking about now. You know, the exploration of sex without an understanding of sex. Um, people associate that with freedom. And a lot of that comes from the theories of Sigmund Freud, you know. And when he started to explore certain, you know, psychoanalysis, his whole idea that 
the drive of sex was the strongest um, stimulant. And therefore, if you were to repress the sexual urges of an individual, you're, you're essentially oppressing um, the person or you're, you're, you're oppressing um, their mind and in oppressing them or repressing the mind, excuse me, um, you're actually causing mental illness. So the idea was that mental illness can be caused or is caused by sexual restraint and traditional sexual norms that lead one to a more uh, puritanical lifestyle, right? So we may say, well, wow, you know, but that was a long time ago. You know, I mean, Freud died in uh, 1939, right? So we might say, man, you know, for something so long ago, it's not, it's no longer an issue. But again, you know, the the sexual revolution occurred in, in the 1960s. And I mean, and there was, um, there was some talk around this prior to that. I had read uh, two books by an individual by the name of Alfred Kinsey. And um, a lot of what he spoke about was incorrect. You know, I, I read these books, man, I don't know how long ago. It was a long, long time ago. I don't even remember. It was a long time ago. And um, the first one I had read was The Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. And then he came out, he had another one called The Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, right? And that one was published in early 1950s. And the other one, the sexual, um, for the female one, and the other one was published, I think, in 1948, The Sexual um, Behavior in the Human Male. So these are old books and you know, um, sometimes you, you want to dive into a lot of old stuff when, when you are studying, you know, and you're studying not only to be a, an, an occultist, spiritualist, um, a righteous person, but also just a scholarly person. Sometimes you, you try to move to the oldest stuff you can find. And you might think that, well, the oldest stuff will give me the best stuff. But eh, sometimes, yeah, sometimes no. But the, the advantage there is you do get to you get an, an understanding of where people are coming from, you know, where their mentality springs from. And um, Alfred Kinsey, you know, um, he had these 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 ideas where he was basically, and this is where we, we end up today, he was normalizing things like pedophilia, normalizing things like bestiality, and essentially, um, even at that time, normalizing same-sexual relationships, uh, which from a public perspective, were, were still considered to be perversions at that time when he was um, promoting his ideas. And he, you know, he was kind of an interesting fellow because he was very slick in what he did. And again, sometimes it's good to study these old norms because what happens is you start to realize that the tricks have not changed that people are still using the same exact tools to kind of rally you into the position that they want you to be in. But he had, he had did this, this study and he took a sampling of people and he spoke to them about um, their sexual practices and things like that. And he was trying to get a, a cue on what the norms were, you know, uh, the sexual behavior with human males and the norms were with, um, human females. But what came out later, you know, was, was, cause I mean, these were, these were very popular 
studies, you know, and, and the questions that he asked, it was like huge range of sexual behavior. But the way he kind of put the questions was just so that he could always get a positive response. Right. And um, primarily this, he himself was a homosexual and, and a, uh, a pedophile and he was very promiscuous sexually. Right. And so were the individuals that he was around his, 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 uh, his colleagues, if you will, his associates. So what he did was he took this sampling of people. I think it was something about 20,000 people somewhere around there. And, uh, he interviewed them about different sexual practices and, and whatnot. And the thing is that we didn't find out until later was that about, I think 30 to 40% of the people he interviewed, um, were prostitutes, were male prostitutes, and uh, many of them were also um, incarcerated. They were criminals. So it wasn't necessarily representative of the um, the population of citizens at that time. And um, so he, he kind of really had a way to, to distort the statistics in terms of what he was, he was pulling, he was pulling at, right? And... Um, like I said, he would phrase things in his questions to kind of get a certain answer. Um, and a lot of the answers in his reports came from like just a few of his interviewees, one of which um, was found guilty of over 300 acts of, of pedophilia. He had 300 victims. And this was one of the people who produced a large amount of the uh, the answers which were leading up to kind of this idea of legitimizing pedophilia, legitimizing dissexuality and a whole bunch of other activities. Right. So, I mean, you can still read the books, you know, um, Alfred Kinsey's book books, you know, either one um, or just probably, I guess by now you could look them up. I'm sure all of this stuff is, you can Google fi it <laughs> at this point, you know, but these, these were some of the, the works that I've, I've read, you know, long time ago, um, before you could just grab them so easily. I'm sure they're probably floating around somewhere, but, um, you know, so there was this idea that was being put forth there with something that the, 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 the population and the public was being told to accept, but not really given the full story on where it was coming from. And that's kind of where we are now. Right. And like I said, again, a lot of times when we enter into our spiritual communities, we remove the ideas of, of sexual ethics. And sometimes we don't realize the removal of sexual ethics is not because we associate spirituality with sexual freedom. It's because it's been associated for us already. And that thought has, that seed has already been planted. The thought has already been ingrained that once you remove yourself from traditional norms, societal norms, that these are the other things that come along with it. Sometimes the way you dress, the way you smell, you know, well, I don't shop over the counter colognes and perfumes now, I only wear oils, you know, um, the colors that you wear. I tend to now wear blacks and purples more than, the, you know, so sometimes these things are associated with um, the thoughts that were kind of implanted. And, you know, there were certain other things that occurred or that were occurring at a certain time, you know, even um, 
mm, I would even say the rise of individuals like Hugh Hefner, right? Um, you got to remember there was there was a time when um, certain things were just not really present in in American culture, and because they were not present, there were other conversations to be had that were driving forth the strength of the family, right? And when you drive forth the strength of the family, you create a certain kind of individual. And sometimes you might create the individual that might help to topple a, a, an oppressive society. So a lot of times the family has to be dismantled. And, um, you know, like I said, in the 60s, you had this kind of, um, which they call the baby, the baby boomer generation, but you had this kind of movement of a lot of, like we had what was called now mass media and and even now you had an industry called the entertainment industry. And via that entertainment industry, they were consistently confronting um, the traditional values of the American population. You know, so around that time, you started to see people getting married later, which was significant. It sounds simple, but it was very significant. You know, um, people were deciding to to pursue college education and employment and employment for a lot longer before they decided to get married. You know, they would they were kind of moving into a place that would be considered um, more radical in terms of, of their thinking. And a lot of this had to do with the advertising energy and in industry and the entertainment industry, you know, and they started to feed people. It's kind of like what Dolomite said, you know, hey, give the people what you what they want, you know. They started to feed people what they wanted based on this new counterculture that was being developed by certain artists and, and certain activists and whatnot. And that counterculture, the counterculture revolution, you know, um, you had like um, Wilhelm Reich. And he was the one who came up with the term sexual revolution. And his whole thing was like, we should completely remove the ideas of, of sexual ethics. And he saw the family as just like a place where people were completely locked down and subdued. You saw the family as an institution that needed to be overthrown. So the sexual revolution wasn't just, you know, let's remove sexual morality, but it was also like, let's overthrow this um, repressive idea of what a family is, you know, because it was all about, we, we need a society that's free and that's open for different sexual experiences. And if we can do that, and we can overthrow the family and um, we can remove what all of these things that we consider to be repressive. Then now we can finally achieve happiness. We can finally achieve freedom. You see, that's that's the idea. And, um, you know, so this these were like the, the concepts that were driving that counterculture revolution, if you will. And uh, when you started moving into the 60s and the 70s. There were um, movements even now to develop new forms of contraception, right? So there was this huge break in what we would consider to be the values of the people, right? And, of course, there was a, a huge rise in divorce, um, pornography, uh, welfare or, or welfare subsidies, drug use, um, crime among youth, and things like that. And the whole idea... And the whole principles that were considered to be the ones that were strengthening the marital institution and the community of family, those were 
kind of moved into a space where now people were thinking more about their individual um, constitution, if you will, and their own personal choices. You know, the, the conversations more shifted to that idea, you know. Um, and again, a lot of this had to do with Freud again, you know, where now we're we're going into the bedroom and and we're removing the regulations around sexuality. And, you know, he had all of these different psychoanalytic theories around sexual liberation and and how um, sexual liberation would kind of become the focal point or the stimulus to um, radical movements, which basically it did, right? Um, but there's a, there's something else to consider, right? And and, I, and I'm hoping everything I'm saying is giving these videos context and for you to understand why within our new there are certain um, regulations as it relates to not only sexual behavior but also um, how we mate with one another. It's not a free fall. You know, and I know a lot of times when people look at um, polygyny or they look at plurality, that's the first thing that comes to mind. You know, that this is all this public dinglinging. <laughs> you know, like you just publicly dingling is public property, and it's hard to imagine that there are actually there are rules. And and I'm not going to say that that's the case for polygyny and, and period, because polygyny just means plural marriage. You know, uh, one man, multiple women, but. The thing is, or polygamy, plural marriage, still, but you, you know, those rules would be established by the society or the the community and the culture that those marriage those marriages live inside of, you know. But so it's it's on you to decide what level of promiscuity you want to explore or what level of restriction and discipline works best for your community and for your family. But you know. Um, there's some there's some undeniable things when we start looking at the the first wave sexual revolution and what we have going on now in the 2020s, 60 years later, um, with you know all of these different these new definitions that are being put in front of us as to what we're supposed to now be accepting in terms of sex and and, and gender and even um, what we could call the age of consent, right? Um, the time period we're talking about in the 1950s, you had two major um, STDs that existed. One was gonorrhea and the other one was syphilis, right? Like I told you, uh, AIDS, quote unquote, wasn't even created, I mean, discovered until 1981, right? So um, the idea of the sexual morality helped to stave off a lot of these diseases. I mean, Today, we have over 30 different kinds of STDs, right? And we have, I think it's it's something like 1.3 million people every day contract an STI, you know, every single day. You know, so the ideas of, of or the concepts of really being able to kind of control our sexual health you know, they, they separate the um, the sexual morality from the sexual health, you know, but and, and that's a slick tool of the medical industry. So even when you see commercials and things like that for STDs or for HIV AIDS, you know, the biggest concern that's raised is over always the health issue, but never the moral issue, you know, and um, 
you know, of course, AIDS, HIV AIDS was always the big thing. Well, that was a big thing throughout the 80s and the 90s. You don't hear as much talk anymore. It doesn't mean it's, it's gone anywhere, kind of like SARS, you know, morphing into coronavirus. You know, it doesn't mean that it's, it's gone anywhere. But, I mean, um, in 81, it was, you know, it was, it was pretty obscure. And then now we have over 40 million people, you know, who are, are living with HIV AIDS. You know, so again, this idea of sexual immorality, when you hear me talk about the curses, the curses that are brought as a result. And again, I, re- I really will that you can use the video that I sent and kind of understand the perspective a bit, understanding what's being, understand what's being shared there. You know, um, you think about some of the diseases that People contract now because of their sexual immorality and how it creates a wall between um, their own family members, right? Um, You know, there are children who contract HIV AIDS from their mothers, you know? And a lot of times that comes through childbirth. Um, They contract it during the pregnancy, and they contract they contracted while the mother is breastfeeding. So you, you look at these these opportunities and these moments when there's supposed to be all of this great bonding and all of this great love and affection between mother and child, and the mother is actually transmuting a terminal illness to the child in those moments. You see? So um and yeah, HIV can be transmitted through, you know, sharing needles and things like that. But the majority of um, that transference of the epidemic is done through um, sexual intercourse. You know, so we kind of look at some of the consequences of this sexual revolution. And, of course, in that video, for those of you maybe who didn't see it, but that was a... a, um, I know the word transvestite. All right. Uh, some would say drag queen. I don't know if that's still <laughs> PC. But um, there was a drag queen or a, tra- a, a transvestite who was twerking or teaching a group of children to twerk in a library, a group of toddlers. You know, um, so again, we look at some of the, not only the moral and health consequences of what we are now accepting in this this next wave of the sexual revolution but there are there's a psychological effect there's a certain psychological impact that's had when you open up the chakras of children too soon you know um even the ideas of um you know when you're opening up children i mean you're teaching toddlers how to twerk you're over sexualizing them so what happens when children, first of all, are, are sexually active as teens when they're too young? You know, we have so, so much teenage pregnancy. And um, sometimes, of course, in certain areas, it's overlooked because it's just considered the norm. Well, you're not really going to be much in life anyway, so you might as well go ahead and get pregnant. And a lot of that comes from the idea that a lot of adolescents and teenagers have because they're, they're, they're very self-indulgent and when you're not raised properly, you know, when you're not raised with the proper sense of, of economy, one of the things that you're not taught as a child is 
the beauty or the science of delayed gratification. See, that's that's a poor people thing. I got to have it now. I need it now. I want it now. I want it now. I want to feel it now. Got to eat it now. Got to have it now. Got to taste it now. Got to see it now. That's poor people thinking. You know, and from simple things like playing Monopoly with your children, you know, and teaching them long-range consequences of their actions, it can help things like that. Obviously, being present, I'm not saying Monopoly is the cure to teenage pregnancy, but I'm giving an example. You know, um, but... At that stage in life, people usually don't make the best decisions for themselves. They don't really think about long-term interests, especially, again, if, you, if you're growing up with a poverty mindset, then, you know, long-term interests and things like that don't even come to the table, right? You don't know what you, you don't have a three-year plan. You don't have a five-year plan. And your sexual activity can override all of your thinking because infatuation amongst young people um, usually is pretty high. And young people are usually already infatuated with themselves. They're, they're, they're some of the most selfish creatures you'd ever, especially teenagers, very selfish. You know, so um, what happens is that when they get into these sexual relationships because they've been tainted, you know, from what could have been a, a beautiful and a, and a loving and an even caring relationship they become tainted, you know, because now sex is introduced when it shouldn't be introduced, right? So what happens in that sense now, um, that sexual imperative or, or the sexual priority overrides their thinking and they become possessive as well. You know, um, they look to receive all of their satisfaction and fulfillment within one another and to reap all all of the the enjoyment that they would through various relationships just in one another. See, because what sex does in young people, it creates, again, that possessiveness. When they're at an age when they should be all about expansion, they become very contractive. So at that age, they should be exploring many relationships. And I'm talking about friendships. I'm not talking about, um, quote unquote, romantic relationships. I'm speaking about friendly relationships and platonic relationships. But they, they end up getting into certain um, relationships with their peers that become sexual. And then they become very absorbed in these intense, very exclusive kind of relationships. And what happens is because they're not really exploring or, or expanding their other social skills, what happens is that they become boring people. <laughs> you know, um, they lose their, their ability to really develop social skills they're not really developing character that they would if they were engaging with other people. They're not growing as, as individuals. And what happens now, even the very relationship that they've absorbed themselves into begins to suffer. Not only relationship with their families begin to suffer, the relationships with their, with their friends begin to suffer. And um, they forsake all of these different relationships and all these skills because it's very easy to have sex. Sex is an easy pleasure. So it must be good. It must, you know, within 30 seconds, we can be having sex and, and feeling great. And but, but but what happens is that when that begins to fade, as it always does, they become very angry people. They become very depressed people. And sometimes you've had even young people who will c kill themselves because of an ending of a relationship. And the ideas of, you know, wanting to yearn for a sexual experience or wanting to yearn for amorous experience is completely normal. 
And what it really does is it fuels the hunger for marriage. It should fuel the hunger for relationship and create an excitement around the mystery of it. But when you live in a society where you have individuals twerking to children, toddlers in a library, um, that teenage or adolescent idealism around the beauty of a relationship and, and the ethnic responsibility of their purity, it's gone. It's gone. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's just removed. And now where once modesty is celebrated, modesty now becomes, you know, kind of a, a thorn in, in people's side. And the idea of, of again, the, the purity and the righteousness that one should, should maintain, you know, um, which would then kind of project what the beauty of a relationship is. That's also gone. You know, and again, through the entertainment industry, this is the sensationalized image and idea of what the sexual experience is supposed to be, which reality never matches that. I mean, it's, it's not going to be that, you know, but again, children usually don't have those those reasoning capabilities to understand, OK, we're not going to have sex on the car hood in the rain. And uh, I mean, the hood is hot, <laughs> you know, but uh, and then, you know, you're going to dent the hood. I can't bring the car back like this, you know, so it's, it's just, but yeah. And on the, in the video or wherever I was watching it, it, it looked awesome. But you know, a lot of times in real life, it can be a bit more disappointing and even marriages can be less than gratifying. You know, you had some of that even in the fifties, but that was because marriage counseling didn't even exist back then in the fifties. So, you know, if there was a lack of sexual gratification, whatever it was, just wasn't talked about. You just grinned and bared it. So, that was a little bit different, but, um, you know, what I'm really speaking about here is the when you're exposing young children to something prematurely, to sex prematurely, you know, you're exposing them to certain consequences that rip through their spirit. You know, I mean, you look at this statistically, you can look this up. Young girls between 12 and 16 years old are six more likely, six times more likely to um, to attempt suicide than virginal girls, girls who maintain their virgin their virginity at the same age. You know, um, they're nine times more likely to be arrested. You know, um, so that sexual revolution, you know, um, it leaves certain challenges. And again, the idea of it, it makes a lot of money for the entertainment industry. It makes a lot of money for the ad industry. A lot. You know, over $4 billion is spent yearly on teenage childbirths. Childbearing, not births, excuse me. Most teenage mothers within the first year of their, their pregnancy or first year of their giving birth um, are on some form of government subsidy. But it costs the taxpayers over four billion a year. You see, so there's obviously an impact to all of this, and there's obviously an intricate connection between how we perceive life, how we perceive what our lineage should be, um, and the influence that we can have via our sexual behavior. And of course, there are there are complexities, there are issues that rise up. Um, that sometimes we're just trained out of looking at, you know, 
we haven't even gotten into the teenage prostitution, the teenage pornography, child pornography, teenage pornography. Um, we haven't even gotten into, um, man, it's, there's, so, there's so much that goes wrong here. Um, of course, the single, the single um, led homes. You know, it is more difficult for a woman who already has a child with someone to um, gain a mate. That is more difficult. Most men do not want to take care of another man's child. That's just, it's very simple. Um, Then when you have young people usually who are engaged in certain behaviors that create a perversity in what their relationship is supposed to be, Unfortunately, a lot of times that 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 familial breakdown or the knowing in the familial breakdown does also lead to a lot of domestic abuse as well in many different forms. You know, um, and again, this idea of sex, which is a marriage without commitment, is a farce idea. You know, and again, like I said, when you have it within, you know, movies, you have it within music, you have it within advertising you know, that, that level of immorality, everyone's got to now outdo each one another in each industry. So it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And what you see via videos and advertisements and, and in books and magazines and music, everything is promoting, you know, the pleasures of sex. And um, they completely brush aside any elements of responsibility as it pertains to sex and, and extramarital relationships or Premarital sexual relationships are always exciting and, and and the risk of it all and they're, they're kind of it's like a glamorous aspect to it. They don't speak about the negative consequences of it. It's just an unrealistic portrayal of what the sexual experience truly is, you know. So there's a lot to this. You know, I could go I could go on for a while here, um, and I don't want to. <laughs> But, you know, I'm speaking about just why sexual restraint within our new is necessary. And it's necessary in a society, but, you know, we, we have to focus on what we do and how we do things. There's a reason, you know, we have a courting process. That courting process is very necessary because our social environment requires that we even counter some of the damage of the sexual, relation, uh, sexual revolution and, and sexual restraint. Um, Whereas one time it was viewed as unhealthy, you know, we have to understand that there's a moral obligation that lets us see the, the, the healthiness of sexual discipline, you know, and we define our principles as far as what we want to do based on our community and our own culture. And we have to characterize what we consider to be cool, not necessarily popular culture, if you will, um, because then you start falling into situations where sex is used as as a tool of manipulation you know you'll have guys that will use sex to make a uh, a female think she's getting a certain level of security and you have young girls or or just girls in general that will um use the casual connection of of sex you know just to kind of make a guy think that they'll be able to get something without necessarily committing to any kind of love or anything like that and there are essential complementary differences between men and women that we need to celebrate. These things were celebrated years ago, and now we're not supposed to talk about them. But, um, you know, like I said, 
a, a, a female has to be responsible for the visual arousal that she's able to generate within the male, you know, and he has to be responsible for, you know, ethically, uh, for that sense of uh, security and the promise of love that she's able that he's able to generate within her, you know, and these are positive and intelligent reactions to feminism, you know, um, feminism told women to avoid being victims of men by lowering their expectations of men. So what did that mean? We'll have a whole bunch of casual sex because um, if you can if you can do that. You're also able to kind of compete with men um, in terms of using sex for control and dominance, right? We're not with any of that. And I felt it was a very important topic because sometimes I hear things come out of the mouths of would-be our new members, the students, and they don't realize um, how far away from popular culture and Western social norms that our new truly is, you know, um, just because you may be able to speak to something kind of casually doesn't mean that there's not a lot of thought that goes behind it. There's not a lot of energy that goes behind it, or there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of moral positioning and commitment that goes behind the attitudes that we express within Anu. And yeah, control is a big one. And like I said, I know that it's not spoken about very much in terms of, um, the unrealistic spiritual environment, but um, discipline and control from a psychological and a physiological perspective are important in order to avoid certain social and psychological consequences that come from the lack thereof. All right. So, um, again, I, I, I will that that video wasn't too harsh for you, but you were able to understand, you know, not just the the, the ludicrousy of this that individual doing what they were doing, but the fact that they were doing it in front of toddlers. And to understand that, you know, sometimes this is how our children are taken away from us when they're overexposed to certain things and we're thinking that they're they're innocent. And 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 like the effect that it's having, it's like it's not even the tip of the iceberg, if you will. You know, but it goes so deep into their psyche and it, and it rips them away from us. It rips them away from all sanity, you know, and sometimes they never find their way back. They never make it back, you know. So I just wanted to share all of that and, uh, you know, willfully give you something to consider and think about. And again, I understand that this isn't for everyone because uh, for some of you, you're very much um, grateful for the sexual freedom that comes with the removal of certain social norms. And that's, if that's what you want, you go ahead and have that. You have at it, you know, all you want. But for anyone claiming to be a part of our new, understand that these are, these are the norms that are expected of you. You know, um, matrimony is expected of you. We're not a movement of single people. Uh, we're not a movement, you know, that um, revels in singlehood. We're just not. And we're not a movement of people who have no no sexual discipline or control, you know. And if you have a history of that, then there'll be certain things that'll be put in front of you that you may feel uncomfortable with because you thought you were escaping that, you know, and you're not. 
You know, so if you if you're coming in, you're you're an unwed mother, or you're a male who has a bunch of, or has any children out there, and you you don't necessarily have a matrimonial relationship with the mother of those children, then there may be certain questions asked, or there may be certain tasks put in front of you, in order for you to recalibrate and realign with your proper sexual ethics as related to what Anu teaches. I know could be heavy stuff because sex is such a um, personal thing. <laughs> I don't, I don't mess with my sex now. I don't mess with my poontang. You know, but um, these are the things that we have to look at and address if we're going to move forward as a people and cease to live this very um, base, beast-like level of existence. All right. This has been Chief Yuya. And, uh, you know, I will that I speak to you all very soon, you know, again with some more when I get a, when I get an opportunity to speak again. And uh, again, I will reiterate: people still asking. I'm a matter of fact, I'm gonna share two things that people keep asking about: readings, askosiris.com. All of the links are in these videos and podcasts, so there's, you don't really need to get into my inbox and ask me about how do I get a read. It's right here, and. Joining the ministry. I keep getting those questions. Anulifeglobal.org. You'll see Anu men, Anu women. Those are the two categories. You got to pick one. <laughs> it's just, that's it. There's no, uh, yeah, I'm going to leave that out. I'm going to leave that alone. But um, that's how you join. All right. And um, that's how you apply to join. We'll be looking over applications. So for those of you who have put in, let me add this because some people have asked me about this. Those of you who have put in already um, and you haven't heard back, it's not because you were rejected. Um, around the solstice is when we will be doing our reviews for everyone who put in applications previously. All right, so just just hold tight, hold tight. All right, um, and until then, I you know I will that all of you can be with us and that. But I, even though I know that's not you know that's not always the way. Some people don't make it to the final mile, um, but I will that you can make it as far as you possibly can. Uh, with us in this beautiful and grand movement towards recalibrating with the creator and the originator of all existence. All right, everyone. Enjoy your day. Peace.